0: You know, a lot of us at the time, we had industry jobs. I think SK, when he started, not right, he was like in IT. Low was maybe interning at Def Jam. Info was obviously at Hot. I-, I was, you know, between Vibe and The Source.
1: This is Mikey Fresh from Misinfo.tv.
0: And then I started getting recognized more, even while I was, quote unquote, you know, writing for, you know, these major historical hip hop publications from, from my work on the blog. And then I started getting, like, this treatment from labels, from big brands, from artists that I thought only Sway got, that I thought only people on MTV got. Because you got to remember, I'm still new to the industry. So once I started getting the fucking Gucci Man album early before <laughs> the place I work or being offered to, you know, go to Coachella or...
1: Or, or fly to London or yeah,
0: you know. <laughs> yeah all, all these things and they're more concerned about hey we need coverage on this TV not necessarily where it worked so it was crazy just to be invited to the table because of my work through this blog, through something that a lot of artists and labels thought were bad and thought we were some people who were specifically out to leak their music for harmful purposes to gain profit or anything off that. None of us in the new music cartels started these blogs for the purpose of becoming pacemakers or becoming kings or becoming these quote unquote internet celebrities. You know, we all started for the love of music. Like we all literally just cared about the music first so we could listen to it ourselves, you know what I mean, like, these all started as passion projects and through your fans, through the people, whatever, the formation of technology, we just became these quote-unquote gatekeepers of the rap internet.
1: Being king of the mountain brings with it a lot of benefits. You're celebrated, you're paid, you're doing what you want. It also means that everyone has their sights set on you. Friends, enemies, Forces you've never even considered. So it's best you stay aware of your surroundings. But realize, too, if your head is always on a swivel, even the king can get pretty dizzy. Better watch your step. We're It's The Real. And this is Episode 8. Kick in the door, wave in the 404. If you ask S.K. from Not Right
2: or Mecca from Two Dope Boys... Or half from on smash about David Benjamin, who ran Universal Music Group's anti-piracy division, you'll find a common feeling.
3: <laughs> David Benjamin, that motherfucker. <laughs> I know he sent an awful lot of C and Ds. That's what I remember about him.
4: Oh, that dickhead lawyer that tried to get us shut down and insisted that we were nothing more than bootleggers and pirates and hackers.
1: Hoff, what does the name David Benjamin mean to you?
5: My old friend from Universal.
1: What kind of impact did he have on the blog era?
5: If you ask him, he was our biggest champion. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's, a, that's a great answer. Um,
5: I, I know he always uh, would even submit me music from his son's bands at the time.
1: Finding
2: information on David Benjamin online is not easy. But if you do enough digging, you'll find a very compelling story. One that includes David's brother Dick, who was the director of manufacturing at Sony Music CD plant in Carrollton, Georgia. Prior to that, Dick worked at the plant back home in Terre Haute, Indiana, before Sony bought CBS Records. In fact, David and Dick's mother worked at the Terre Haute plant too, back when it was the first CD manufacturing facility in the U.S., And you could say the music business was really a family business for the Benjamins. And it's no wonder that David would take anti-piracy so seriously with jobs so close to home on the line. And that would have made for an amazing episode. Except, it's about the wrong David Benjamin. Motherfucker. So let's talk about THE David Benjamin. Starting in 2002, as UMG's SVP of anti-piracy, his mission was to stop the theft of music, a problem that was not only hitting the company's bottom line, but becoming a talking point everywhere he went. Speaking to a group of students at Princeton in 2003, he was asked point blank if he could save the music industry. He said, quote, I have no choice but to save it. The student newspaper felt he projected desperation. To hear David describe it, His entire career had been about promoting artistry and protecting artists. When he worked as a lawyer at CBS Records in the 80s, he helped integrate MTV when he threatened to pull all of CBS's videos from rotation unless Michael Jackson's Billie Jean got played. In the 90s, he was counsel for LL Cool J, Mary J. Blige, and the Olsen twins. And now, he would protect the business as a whole. In this new role, and perhaps by his own doing, David Benjamin was the face of this operation. Every takedown sent out wasn't from the UMG legal department. It was from David Benjamin himself. A co-worker of his in London said, quote, Are you going to stop piracy? No, you're not. To try and set that as an objective is just not going to succeed. Can we make piracy socially unacceptable? Absolutely. And that has to be our ambition around the world. Noah Callahan Bever was the chief creative officer at Complex and oversaw the growth of the Complex Media Network, which sold major corporate advertising around heavily trafficked music blogs like Nah Right.
6: David Benjamin from UMG became very vigilant about the takedown orders. And that really put a huge wrinkle in things for a lot of the bloggers within the network. Obviously on the music side, because you know, it went from you could go to not write for absolutely everything to now if it's not on a major label and it's not on a real album, but sometimes things will get taken down, the links will get taken down, and the labels got more and more aggressive about making sure that their IP was protected. A lot of the volume of the posting that these guys were doing was, you know, curating new music. And when you can't do that, it meant that they had to either sort of adjust their curation, or create different products.
1: People who have worked for David Benjamin say that for him, it's just a job. But he also created this job. He reported directly to the COO of this multi-billion dollar company. His purview included the rosters of all the Universal Music imprints, including Def Jam, Interscope, Republic, Motown, and dozens more. His job description? To protect creative content before, during, and after a project would drop. So his power was endless, and there was no one looking over his shoulder. Save the company at all costs. No one was off limits. Not the traffickers stealing CDs from the manufacturing plants, and not the bloggers posting songs sent to them by Def Jam employees right down the hall from David Benjamin. This is Misinfo.
7: People would tell me, oh, yeah, we were talking about you in the marketing meeting. And I just thought that that was really ironic and funny because, and I think that this was true for all of NMC. We were always being talked about in the marketing meeting. We were always a data point on a presentation, on a pitch deck.
1: Here's Mikey Fresh.
0: It felt like the label people were your buddy and they were like, oh, great. Thank you for showing love Here you go and then as soon as something gets posted that you know not even necessarily a leak it could be an image it could be anything As all of a sudden we have people's legal departments calling us we have youtube takedown notices and these things have real effect on us because at this time of the game people have quit their jobs to you know run their blogs professionally and now you're being faced with cease and desist terminated accounts oh yeah i mean i get a email from an anr a
3: promo person with a song and then I'd get an email two hours later from that same label's legal department telling me I needed to remove the song. Look, that's just the dysfunction of any big industry or any big corporation. One hand not knowing what the other hand is doing, but I think really it speaks to the lack of vision on the part of the music industry not being able to see that like hey this format is tailor-made for what you guys do it's basically free promotion i understand that there are copyright issues that play here but like you need to figure out a way It, it just blows my mind that there's there was nobody in these labels who could figure out a way to like work with people
1: on a level that it would be beneficial to both parties, you know. Artist managers and label reps would log into a file hosting service like ZShare or SendSpace. That's where they'd upload audio, adding an anonymous layer to any paper trail. Records were leaked, and the bloggers were the ones left exposed.
5: For most of the labels, we were getting those links sent to us, But they were from, like, these shady Gmail accounts that had no traces back to who the actual person was.
1: Andreas Hale was at BET.com. They knew what was going on. But it always is something when you have the big brothers
8: watching the little brother and allows the little brother to be on the sandcastle, but then that sandcastle is bigger than yours and you just want to kick that shit over. That's kind of what happened. The irony of it was so ridiculous because from the complete outside, nobody really understood what was going on. But there's always some old backhanded deals that happen where the label's like, here, can you premiere this? But you
1: didn't get it from me. Like, that shit was crazy. And then when it comes down, everybody's hands off. And now you're the one that's got to take the blow. But because there was no backup plan, there was no next step, this tension just existed. C&Ds would get sent out, bloggers would take down the offending links, and then they would post the next round of songs which would inevitably get taken down. Jamal Jamo worked in Def Jam's digital marketing department.
3: It started as a sacrifice that I understood. It started as an L I knew I would need to take. Like these people that I've built a rapport with, some have become friends, like here's an understanding that they will just have to have. And then it turned into, well, there's still ways to show that this audience is crucial to their vital tower rollout. So we start sending album art. We start sending track lists. We treat them like a press outlet as opposed to treating them like a digital outlet. Here go pieces that you can post, and when there's ten thousand comments on it, I can take that back and say, "Well, look, here are the features that they're excited about. Here's what the comments are. Here's like where we are continuing to push the attention." Now, imagine if we did this with an exclusive record. Imagine if we did this with the thirteenth track from a twelve track album. Like, imagine if we fed this and use it to our advantage.
1: Only two years earlier. They formed the New Music Cartel to try and regulate when and how songs, projects, and videos would debut online. Now, as a direct result of the label's takedowns, there was a smaller pool of music available to post, and less diversity from blog to blog. Here's DJ A-Track. The worst thing that happened to the blog era was,
5: uh, and even though touches on blogs that were run by a lot of our friends, was when
1: those sort of cartels started happening and every blog was posting the same thing. To me, that completely killed the whole purpose of blogs. When it got to a point where you could go to 10 different blogs and they were posting the same three releases on that day, and then you can go to those same blogs two days later they have the same posts again. And I think that people who really are curators and who really have their own taste and that that's the reason why they have, you know, some sort of platform, It's important to prioritize that over the quick fix of, did I post this at the same time as my competitor did? This is John Gotti. I
8: always looked at them as, each one of them were unique in a sense. Yeah, there was a ton of overlap, but that overlap existed because we were all posting some of the same material to a certain degree, like a, you know, a certain video came out. We had to post it just so you could stay on top and stay relevant in a way. So we were all gonna post that similar content. It's really the voice that you apply to it. And I always knew that Shake and Mecca were gonna approach it one way. SK was gonna write two sentences. On Smash was gonna have their own take on it, and it was gonna be mixed in with a ton of other content. Miss Info and that crew, they were gonna approach it in their way. So you could always put your own
1: spin on it. Complex allowed the blogs to benefit from their audiences. They put sales staff behind them and helped them grow from a cool, free platform into a business. But there was this nagging feeling bloggers had, that they'd entered into a bad deal. When Complex first sold them on joining the network, they initially said it would be a small and exclusive club splitting the pie. Now they were closing in on 100 at the table. Brandon Jenks Jenkins was an avid reader of the blogs. I think independence is a certain voice. It's a certain cadence, but it also
2: is a certain aesthetic, right? Like, these blogs felt very block and square shape, And,
3: like, their whole visual personality, like, arrived in their header. And their blog roll on the side of who they
2: thought was cool. And it was like kind of creating this online clubhouse. Those bigger outlets, they're Walmart. They're trying to talk to everybody. And how can you be
1: interesting when you're trying to talk to everybody? And for people like Dimples from the smoking section, who admired the new music cartel from afar... There was genuine confusion when they partnered with Complex.
9: It was almost like, you don't need Complex. Like, yeah, obviously Complex, is a check. Cool. Amazing. I don't know what their situations are. But it was one of those things where it's like, I needed the Complex media network. You didn't. Like, you're good. You're super good. What do you mean? So it wound up being like they got accepted and enveloped by a site that like, you know what Complex did to those sites. But they didn't help none of them out.
10: Uh. Uh. Blowing money fast on this side, nigga. catch up, nigga. catch up. I think I'm big meat, uh. Larry Hoover whipping work. Hallelujah, One Nation under God. Real niggas getting money from the fucking start.
2: Advertising dollars had been slow to come to the internet. But when they did, Complex had helped some of these blogs earn a lot of money. Enough to buy a house amounts of money. But as time went on, Complex executives saw the ad model moving away from page views and toward branded content. To them, that meant change was needed, and sites would need to get overhauled.
6: You would get really good at doing one thing, and then six months later, the entire game would change and the thing that the advertisers wanted would be different. And um, I think that put a huge burden on all of us, both the blogs and the editors at Complex, to constantly be trying to innovate and figure out how to stay ahead of the
2: curve. It was hugely expensive to build out a website in 2010, ranging anywhere from five to $15,000, depending on what you needed it to do. And that was a cost that these independent operators would have to undertake themselves. In fact, Complex had their designers mock up what a potential new now right could look like and then tried to charge SK for the work. He declined. Any move away from what they'd been doing could lose their audiences. Meanwhile, Complex was afraid that the SKs and misinfos were putting a ceiling over their potential. Both sides were sure the other would be at fault if and when the money slowed down.
6: It's not like these things happen for these guys it was like six hot months and then it was over this was like a a three four year window of growing revenue year over year over year and i can totally empathize with them being like what i'm doing isn't broken so why do i need to redesign the website video costs tons of money like why am i going to sacrifice part of my personal income to like try to make these new products that maybe the audience doesn't want and you have to remember also that there's definitely a attitude in online publishing like And this goes across the board for, you know, big guys and little guys, but especially in that moment, right when digital publishing started to work and we were really getting real audiences, it all felt very fragile. And anytime anyone updated anything on their UX, the audience went crazy. Of course, now, 20 years into it, you know, we all know, like, look, websites have to redesign themselves every couple of years. Me and Minya would talk about redesigning missinfo.tv and she worked with designers at Complex and you know ultimately I like what I know and what I know is working and I just want to leave it that way.
7: I've known them 30 years so that relationship with Complex was not a relationship with Complex it was a relationship with Noah specifically who basically knows me well enough to know like Ninya, you're creating this website and you're working really hard on it did you know that you could also have advertisement on here my answer was like no i didn't know that and i don't know how to do that and i have i I don't know how to figure that out so that's where it is and he was like well i want to help you because you're my friend i think that if he didn't and i'm not saying that it wasn't also beneficial for complex of course it was but If it weren't for Complex, I probably would not have done it. By it, I mean, like, I probably would just have kept posting and never been compensated with ad revenue. I can see why bloggers, whether it's the complex network or any other network, would feel disillusioned because at a certain point, networks needed to grow so exponentially that they started to cannibalize their own property.
2: Mecca from Two Dope Boys feared the worst. That complex would force him and his partner, Shake, to turn their website into something so foreign from what they had built.
4: I think they want to be similar to like Fuse and Iceland. They want to be like a TV network. I don't have anything bad to say about that, but it's also like, yo, where do we stand with y'all? There's a lot of people on my side who don't want to be a personality.
2: Not nah, right, with its same simple design since the beginning. Its same formula for posts and the same Yonker sense of humor wouldn't shift either. S.K. dug his heels in, where his stubbornness was once his superpower, unwilling to be swayed by the buildings. It looked to his partners at complex like his kryptonite. I didn't
6: work in the partner relations side of the business, so I wasn't privy to every time that S.K. called complaining about ads not firing properly or, you know, not liking the content on a McDonald's campaign that was running on the site or whatever. I'm sure that there were issues with that and I'm sure that it, it was a challenge operationally for the marketing and sales team at Complex to state all of the concerns of what would go on to be like the better part of 100
2: publishers. B. Fred was then the deputy editor at Complex.
11: I think it was a subtle long-term transition. I don't think there was like a moment where we were like, we don't need the blogs anymore, you know? Slowly and slowly, the blogs were getting like a smaller piece of the pie and Complex was getting a bigger piece of the pie because the things that brands wanted to buy were changing and Complex was willing to give them those things and the blogs were less willing to give them those things. Complex was incentivized to execute those things themselves rather than really train and coach the blogs to be up on those sides of the business because they made more money if they kept those things in-house rather than outsourcing them to one of their partners.
2: Complex couldn't force SK or Mecca or any of the blogs any further than they wanted to go. They were 50-50 partners in ad revenue, nothing more. If Complex wanted full control, they'd have to buy their own properties and build things in their own image. So that's what Noah and then-CEO Rich Antonello did.
6: Rich hit me up and was like, hey, man, we want to like get a, a few indie rock blogs into the network. We have appetite for some of these advertisers that they want to talk not only hip hop blogs, but also to sort of like blogs that are speaking like all the cool stuff that's going on in Brooklyn right now. And this is in 10, 2009, that era. of. Brooklyn Indie Rock. I like talked to some of the guys on the music team, sourced a few names, and one of them was Pigeons and Planes. And I believe at that point Jacob had actually been working for us as an aggregator in his downtime. I give all these names to Rich and Rich does the research and comes back and is like, hey man, like Pigeons and Planes. Like, is that the same kid that writes for the music channel? And I'm like, Yeah, you know, he does. Obviously, you know that his revenue through PNP is like pretty modest as a part of the ad network. He's like, yeah, he doesn't have that many impressions so it's not like he's getting these gigantic checks or anything. And he was like, do you think he would ever be interested in selling the brand and coming on and running it as an employee? And I was like, I mean, I can't speak for him but I'm sure that if the upfront money was appropriately sized and felt like a good opportunity he would certainly entertain it. And I just hooked them up and that was kind of how that happened. That was an easier one for complex Because the revenue was, it was a small set for us to have acquired a not Wright or a Vlad or two dope boys would have been, I I don't want to say prohibitively expensive, because I'm sure if there's a will, there's a way. But those guys were making real money. And if you evaluated their businesses based on annual revenue times three or four, which is typically how
11: media companies are evaluated, those would have been substantial checks they were kind of flirting with this idea of like, oh, if we owned these sites, we could be making more money off of them rather than splitting the money. Capitalism, you know? And uh, (laughs) I think the Pigeons and Planes thing, I think was good for the company because it gave them sort of credibility and more of an indie music space in in a way that they didn't really have before with Complex. But also I think it made them realize like, oh, like we don't need to buy these blogs. We can create similar content on the Complex site. Or if we want a sort of different brand that has a bit of a different perspective, we can start a new site. You know, I think the Pigeons and Planes experience made them realize like, oh, they can just start their own brands digitally at relatively low cost and hire people who who maybe had experience working on blogs independently, but they don't necessarily need to buy that person's exact blog.
2: And for SK, whose traffic and voice was integral in launching Complex's operation and recruiting other sites, this was a hell of a payback.
3: I think that when they invested in Pigeons and Planes, they kind of were like, fuck Narite. we don't care anymore. They're going to do what they're going to do. But we have a financial interest in this site, so we're going to put our resources into helping them grow and Narek right, can do whatever it's going to do over there. And at that point, now I'm competing with other sites that are on the same network, which is fine. But then I'm also competing with Complex Editorial, which they're pretty much doing the same thing that myself and on Smash and Two Dope Boys are doing. But they're doing it with a staff of however many writers and bloggers and editors. And it's kind of like, are you guys trying to help me here or are you trying to eat my food?
1: Double XL magazine was back in a place of influence, perhaps more than any time since they fired their longtime editor-in-chief, Elliot Wilson. The freshman covers proved that XXL could, if nothing else, compete with the blogs. Elliot set out to finish them. In the years since he was let go, Elliot produced a TV show, did a little freelance writing, and flirted with taking a job at BET. But instead of committing himself to any of these traditional forms of media, he put together a loose plan for his own blog. One day, while crossing the street in Chelsea, he ran into a former coworker from Double XL, the writer Brian B. Miller.
10: We just saw each other and it we was just so happy to see him because, you know, he was gone and I missed him at XXL and we just had an exchange enthusiasm.
1: And then he's like, yo, um, you still got the same email? Elliot had him head out to the Georgia Diner in Queens, where he outlined an idea for B Dot. Instead of the magazine environment they were used to with fact checkers and copy editors, and a staff of dozens, it'd be streamlined. Three of them to do all of the work. Instead of a monthly magazine, they'd be posting content around the clock. And instead of the two of them chasing down checks, they'd be bankrolled by Eminem's manager, Paul Rosenberg. A couple of weeks later, we had a meeting with Paul, and uh, he pitched the idea to me again, and he was like, it's going to be called Rap Radar. I was
10: like, the fuck is a Rap Radar?
1: <laughs>
10: it was like... It was like, I'm going to have to know HTML. I could even hook up a MySpace case. You know, and he's like, yeah, it's going to call Rap Radar. And he's like, if you stay with confidence, it'll, you know, it'll sound good. I was like, okay, Rap Radar. I was like, all right, well, website it is. I'm a magazine guy, but i give this, this
1: blog thing a chance. It seemed so long ago when Elliot took S.K. out to lunch, offering him a job at Double XL. Now when Elliot approached S.K., it was to pay his respect when he first told me about it i was
3: like okay cool i was like oh he's just trying to slide into my lane i see <laughs> you know i felt like look it's a free country this is a free blog world anybody's free to start their own site and do whatever they want to do you know but then at a certain point elliot <laughs> he loves competition so everything becomes a competition elliot doesn't like to lose. Elliot is
10: insatiable. He has like this insatiable appetite to win. So our goal was to be the premier blog. And obviously, not right was was the shit. Like, not right was it. Couldn't sleep. We would have to be on top of our game. I would wake up to like maybe, no lie, 40, 50 emails before 8 o'clock from Elliot. Like, yo, we got to post this. We got to post that.
2: Rap Radar jumped into the deep end making splashy announcements, setting up an office in Soho called the Rap Radar Mansion, and fighting off the new music cartel for exclusives. But low-key got it from the mud. He wouldn't just sit and watch backroom deals play
12: out. You know, I remember this. (laughs) This is funny. I remember, uh, I think it was Sav called me one day. Oh no, we were outside this hotel and he said to me, he was like, Elliot is mad that I'm giving you records before him. And I'm like, why in? He's like, yeah, he hates the fact that you get the records before him. And I'm like, cool,
1: but like, bro, like this is my playing field. I'm not, this is not print anymore. This is what I do. How did you feel when Elliot came into your lane and started Rap Radar? I hated it. I hated him, because he was so fucking annoying. He was so fucking annoying.
12: And I'm just like, this motherfucker, like, and I would love writing shit. I would love talking shit. Like when I would write a little editorial on my website, I would take shots at him. Oh my God, I hated him. He was so fucking annoying with that dumbass laugh and just thought he should deserve everything and I'm the OG and this, that, And, and which he, rightfully so, can have that attitude. But nah, as a new kid on the block, I was like, fuck him, fuck that.
2: This is my shit. Mecca and Shake grew up on Elliot's editorials.
4: At one point i took a lot of inspiration from elliot wilson back from his ego trip days to his run at double XL. like he definitely played a part in me wanting to delve more into hip-hop journalism and again somewhere down the line he and shake just started having issues and i don't know what started it how it happened or whatever me personally i believe it was because rap radar came out and it was now a competitor so Things got a little frosty after that. So I don't know, it's like, the online world is weird, bro. Like, (laughs) like, it started off as like, something that was considered really, really nerdy. And then people really started like, beefing over this shit. And it's just like, it's the internet. To this day, it's still the internet. All I have to do to shut you out is turn my computer off. That's how little these issues mean to me. I got bigger issues like, my mom's was really sick at one point. My sisters were having their first children. Like, I don't give a fuck what somebody on the internet got
8: to say. It was just weird to me. It's weird to me to this day, honestly. You invited corporate money into something organic. That's what it was. Cause It wasn't like Rack Radar was just built out of passion. That was built to crush every other blog. When Rack Radar came, and I'm not gonna say it's just Elliot, I don't know, like the financing behind it, it was to kill every other blog. I don't know who let the fox into the henhouse. When I heard about it, I knew it was also going to be a prop because it was going to change everything. Because now, no longer is it we're going to share the music with each other and we're going to post on our blogs and we're going to share our exclusives. Now it's going to be a fight.
2: Those fights kept B-Dot on his toes, at all hours and in all places.
10: <laughs> I'm on a date and I got my fucking laptop on me because I'm looking like a real creep. And I'm putting on a laptop with a. Remember, like the hotspot? This is before your phone had a hotspot. The team with a little antenna and make a post. Like, it was weird. But we, at the same time, we wanted to be first, you know, because you wanted to break the news. You wanted to be the first outlet to report something.
2: It took Rap Radar a while to find their groove. They tried aggregation, they tried long form interviews. But it wasn't until Elliot and BDOT bought some flipcams, the miniature digital video cameras at the time, which had a built-in USB port and could plug right into a computer, that they finally did something most other blogs could not, document culture instantaneously.
10: I remember going to the shows and having the flipcam and just making sure i document who was there, the highlights, and I would say, Jay-Z brings out Beyonce at a show. Like, that was our thing, and I think it caught on.
2: BDOT and Elliot conducted Flipcam interviews from 6th Avenue in New York City to 6th Street in Austin for South by Southwest, catching up with a Kid Cudi or J. Cole or a young Kendrick Lamar who was blossoming into a major player for the LA-based record label Top Dog Entertainment. Once just a reluctant MC pulled into a cypher at a Charles Hamilton show in New York, Kendrick was now in full control of his voice detailing his presence as a leader of culture and politics in his song, High Power. Visions of Martin Luther staring at me. Malcolm X put the hex on
13: my future, someone catch me. I'm falling victim to a revolutionary song. The Serengeti's clone. Back to put you backstabbers back on your spinal bone. You slit your disc when I
2: slit you my dish. You wanted to diss but jumped on my dick. Documenting culture even extended into ripping audio from Funkmaster Flex's broadcast, live on Hot 97. Flex, who was world-renowned for debuting records with the ultimate fanfare, Made for appointment listening. But if you couldn't be by the radio at 7 p.m., Elliot and BDOT had you covered.
10: Before Flex would get off the air, I would have this song already posted because Hot Night 70s, other outlets were slow to the draw of embracing this new technology. So a lot of times we weren't necessarily fighting for the exclusive, we were kind of creating it.
1: Flex didn't get the internet. He admitted that much when he first invited Kid Cudi to Hot 97 for an on-air interview in April of 2009.
13: New York, Jersey, Connecticut, I want to be so honest with you, I've been doing interviews, I've been doing things for a long time. And I, I, I even told you this, I said, I really want to spend time with Kid Cudi because I'm going to have a real talk with him. And I, I'm going to start, man. Take your time. The whole internet rapper thing. or
1: internet getting exposure to the internet Mm. is very hard for me to understand. For years, the NMC would brag about being the new gatekeepers. No longer did you have to go down the traditional paths, they said, like getting your music to funk flex to premiere on the radio. Flex wasn't in the streets. Flex was out of touch. Flex was old. Flex, the kingpin, the big dog pit bull, the longtime face of New York hip-hop did not like hearing this. So here and there, Flex would clap back.
12: No, he was running his mouth, so I was talking shit back to him. But he was more so talking shit about us because of what we were doing and we were nobodies and this, that, and the third, but yet he had to come down to our level to, to, to keep the relevance.
1: But better than talking, Flex would take action. He'd start his own blog. He'd solidify his place. And more than that, unlike the SKs and low keys and two dope boys, he'd approach this world like a business. But he wasn't about to get his hands dirty on the back end. For that, he turned to a handful of capable women. Dimples, who blogged for the smoking section, designed the site called Inflex We Trust. The way Flex was able to
9: transition to digital was because he was a behemoth. It's like everyone was coming at things with scaffolds and he came with a chainsaw.
1: Karen Civil, who found success in her own blog, helped Flex conceptualize his.
14: It's about growing. It's not about copying. Flex was doing what he had to do he had to move forward in that space like he had to now realize you know what i need to pre-record these i need to get the audio up on my site um because other people were taking his audio so which sense does that make to be fair other people are ripping your content so why not put your own content on your own page and then also put it on your youtube where you can monetize
1: Marissa Mendez, who used her connections in the blogosphere to introduce Nicki Minaj and French Montana to the greater internet, visited Hot 97 on just the right evening.
15: But he didn't have many bloggers, really. So that's where I came in. And he was like, yo, uh, what's your name again? And I was like, Marissa. And... He's like, uh, he like, don't you uh, like computers and shit? And he's like, did the typing move with his hands and shit. I was like, yeah, I do. And he was like, what are you doing now? I'm like, I mean, I work at like a, a fucking dentist office back home. I was like a year out of college and shit.
1: But where Fake Shore Drive was focused on the Midwest, or Dirty Glove Bastard was all about Southern rap, Inflex We Trust was more like Supermarket Suite. Grab everything you can.
15: We did not have an angle. We just... Whatever Flex liked, it was about cars and dogs and rap and fucking uh, news story. He wanted everything. Like this man, and he was so hands on. He never was not hands on for the whole seven years that it went on. Like obsessively, he would email links all day long, post this, post this, post this, post this, post this, post this. Like he did not stop. But he just he just wanted to be the biggest website on the internet. <laughs> that was his <the> goal. <laughs> In the midst of
2: posts about dogs, or sex tapes, or dog sex tapes, there were exclusive songs that debuted on InFlex We Trust, including Runaway by Kanye and Make Me Proud by Drake and Nicki, proving that Flex still did have the juice.
9: The biggest thing for him and the reason why he was able to come in and kind of almost, I don't want to say outmaneuver, but carve out his own path as compared to like a am Not Right or Miss Info, what have you, was because he didn't have to search for the inclusives, one, two, he had the resources to build out a team that killed everyone on the publishing end. I'm talking Flex's site was updated twenty to sixty times a day. Peak N right was going up with twenty to twenty-five posts, peak two dope boys going up with twenty to twenty-five posts, and he's tripling their output.
2: Hot 97 then executive and on-air personality Ebro Darden respected what Elliott and Flex were up to. I think they
10: were trying to go compete and they wanted to go where the audience was going. They wanted to maintain their, you know, competitive nature. And you know, because there is in hip hop, you know, wherever the game's going on at, you know, it's kind of like how pros still show up to the rucker. They're going up there, okay. Let me go see what's popping I'm Kobe Bryant I'm playing the NBA Y'all think this shit is sweet Let me come on over Where y'all play at And show y'all What this really is Or Let me see if I still got it And get in here And mix it up With these young boys And girls And you know Turn up Let's go I heard y'all was over here Popping shit
5: Well here I am
15: Flex doesn't do anything small, so if he's getting in the game, he wants to be the number one at whatever the fuck it is that he's doing.
2: Flex changed the rules of the game. Who would survive would be about money and advertising, not taste. And inside the labels, high-level executives finally figured out how to reassert control. They weren't hanging off a cliff. They were climbing a mountain. Steve Carlos and his partner Kendall Freeman saw the entire picture from their vantage point, straddling the line between record promotions for Def Jam and creating content for bestofbothoffices.com.
13: You gotta remember, we were proprietary about our content, quote unquote. We own the content. We own content with Nas in it, we own content with Jay Z in it, we own content with all of Rockefeller artists in it. That's not our content. We don't own the likeness. We don't own the music. We just shot the footage. I mean, in context, we did. But I think what was the downfall of the blogs was the record companies understanding that there was a cash register on the other side of the box that wasn't just the music. And when they saw the advertisers doing it, and we were selling our content. Because at that time, we started building the stuff with Nod Right. We said, fuck it, we're going to build our own website and just stop giving the traffic to SK and them or to whoever else and just send the traffic to us and monetize it. So then we started hearing through the grapevine how much money these blogs were making. We were like, we're feeding all of these blogs and we used to get a high off of sending out an email blast. In addition to our DJ email blast, we would send out the records and then we'd send out to our blog list. And we had every blog. There's probably like four or five hundred blogs at the time. So putting out a clip of Ghostface saying some crazy shit went viral because it, it got posted on all the blogs and we were getting hundreds of thousands of views on things when they weren't getting hundreds of thousands of views in those days and it changed when him and I saw it first because then it started branching out because Kendall worked at Hot 97 at night so he started getting artists from other record companies and we started putting our brand on those things and it wasn't until those people and those companies got wind of it got slick and then they started shutting down our videos of the music copyright. And they started shutting out our YouTube videos. It was like, oh man, how could you do? You're pissed, calling, why the fuck did you take it down? Calling the managers, why did you take it down? Once that started happening, and then when I got sat down by Business Affairs in Universal and just asked them the question, he's like, well, it's not your content. If Hype Williams shoots a video for DMX, he doesn't own the video. He has to pay for the likeness of those artists, of those people, of that music, and someone else owns those rights. And that was a very sobering thing. Warner Brothers was really on it at that point. And they started shutting down everything. And that's when I said, "Okay, I get it. This is over because if the content can't fuel the blogs, and the blogs can't license the music to play on their platform that they're going to advertise the dollars on. And Complex started buying all the blogs or licensing the blogs and monetizing them through their network. And we even joined the network at a point. That's when I understood it was gonna be over because they basically, it was almost like Universal Music Group buying all of the independent labels and taking away their rights and then selling the rights back to the record company. And then we couldn't post it anyway. So Complex took it from us. We gave it to Complex, willingly. Complex sold it to advertisers and had to give that income to the record company. And then the record company skipped us and just said, fuck it. (laughs) We'll just start shooting this shit ourselves and owning the content. And that's when I saw you guys, I said, this shit is over.
1: A fire lasts as long as there's oxygen to fuel it. During the blog era, no matter whether labels were feeding music to the sites or not, artists were always the blog's heir. Now Right was where XXL freshmen were born. Now Right was that essential cosign. Now Right could make you or break you. That's
3: the... The myth is that at the time was like one post on Not is going to launch your career. But like, you know, we all know that's not the case. There are plenty of artists that I posted that I enjoyed and I thought had potential that didn't really end up going anywhere. And there are plenty that took off. Sure, the post is going to help. It's going to probably get your music listened to by somebody important or somebody who can make something happen for you. But... That's it, like, you're gonna get that one listen, and what are you gonna do after that? Like, it's really on you, it's not on me. I think people probably put a little bit too much importance on it at the time, but at the same time, I'm kind of flattered that they were so eager
1: to get their music on the site. Now, Right was where the Outsiders became cool, until a new bunch of Outsiders told everyone it wasn't. This was Odd Future a West Coast collective of black skater musicians whose aim was to break shit and laugh about it. They were led by a teenage visionary named Tyler, the Creator. Naima Cochran worked with Odd Future when they first signed a distribution deal with Sony.
14: What's happening is that we're moving into a space. And I'll say again, because hardcore and that kind of alternative hip hop, it's not that they weren't a thing. It just never came in a package that looked like our future. So you have these kids who are skate kids, and they're kinda hippies, and they're completely irreverent. I mean, they're anywhere from irreverent to just full-out fucking disrespectful. And their whole shit seems to be like, hip-hop don't fuck with us, so we don't fuck with them.
1: Plain Pat, who previously worked at Def Jam and with Kid Cudi, worked with Tyler for a time. The
8: same way when I first saw Not Right, it was
1: like a big fuck you to what was the current system that's kind of what Tyler brought in in 2009 when every new artist was sending emails with attached music to Nah Right and Two Dope Boys Tyler and his cohorts loudly complained that their shit wasn't getting open before anyone outside of Fairfax Avenue in LA knew who they were Tyler made a scene about not being heard Chuck English of the Cool Kids
15: Tyler's too fucking smart for him
13: he just knew where there was a pocket where he could walk in. Like, we got this aggressive new music. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's different than all the shit y'all posting. Instead of me asking y'all and not getting the attention, how about I just shit on y'all, get the attention, and I kill two birds with one stone. Because if everybody
10: likes this, then they got to post it, and I still shit on y'all. So, you know what I mean? Like, it's a trifecta.
1: Not only would Tyler take to Odd Future's official Tumblr page to make his case, but when it came to his next project entitled "Bastard," his first words were, "Yo, yo, fuck two dope boys
10: and fuck
13: not writing any other fuck nigga ass blog that can put a 18 year old nigga making his own fucking beats, covers, videos, and all that shit. Fuck you, post Drake ass cliche jerking L.A. slossing rapping fuck nigga ass hype beast niggas." <laughs>
3: I remember never having heard of these kids in my life. And now there's a song that starts out dissing my brand. So it's like, all right, cool. So I look into it and I'm like, why is this kid mad at me? And it's because I didn't answer his email. Well, it's like, look, bro, I didn't answer a lot of emails. You know what I'm saying? Like, (laughs) I don't know, man. Like, to this day, that shit amazes me that, like, that's some Trump shit, right? Like, something doesn't go your way, so you turn around and start whining. Like, I don't know, man. I thought, huh, that's funny. That's cool. I'll keep it pushing because I don't
4: know this person. I never met this person, but this person has an issue with me over a perceived slight. And it's literally like, all you had to do was just talk to me. I'm not an asshole. I'll leave that shit for my partner. <laughs> but I, I'll, I'm definitely not one of those, like... I'm purposely ignoring you and everything. I just literally
1: had no idea who you were because I never got your music. The blogs were the system. Odd Future were the youth. And they... Were winning.
14: And the ironic thing about our future is that they couldn't get the not-rights, you heard that new or hot new hip-hop or whatever, but they were getting the LA Times and Rolling Stone. They were getting big outlets to talk about how much people didn't understand them. They got Fallon before there was any deal in place. And I remember watching that Fallon performance and I was like, all right, I have no idea what's going on here.
1: Even from inside the not-right comment section... The bills recognize the changing winds.
10: If he shit it on you, it was just what it was. Because, <laughs> because you gotta understand, our future, they they were younger than the generation that was currently on now, right? For the most part, so they had a whole bunch of fans who would just be like, "Nah, we rock what Tyler said, so f y'all." So. I thought that was interesting.
14: The first time I went to their show, I remember Q-Tip walked in and I was standing outside about to walk in myself. So Q-Tip walks in and one of the kids goes, hey, that's Q-Tip. And then the whole crowd went, fuck you, Q-Tip. And that whole thing was crazy.
1: Whether or not there were emails in the first place, what was true was that while Odd Future built and rallied a fan base, the blogs were painted by artists as the enemy. Andrew Barber. Dude, I thought it was great.
3: I thought it was great for both parties. They had this renegade, outlaw type of vibe, like they were just coming in calling everybody old, like, you know, anybody that was like 30 they were dissing you like calling you old. You know, and those guys are all that age now, which is crazy. You know, that's just kind of how life goes, like everybody eventually becomes a, an elder statesman. I remember whatever they dissed Sk and two dope boys, I think, on like MTV or the Woody Awards or something like that. Like I remember that watching that and being like, dude, it doesn't get any bigger than that.
2: No matter the battles the new music cartel faced throughout the year, from record labels to new competition to a new crop of artists, Thanksgiving 2010 would thankfully be a break. For Hoff from OnSmash.com, that meant gathering with family on Long Island. His BlackBerry, though, would not stop buzzing.
5: My phone was ringing off the hook and, you know, several people that were part of the team at the time were all reaching out asking like, hey, what's going on? And our general assumption was that the website was down or the server crashed or, you know, typically some common issues you face when running a website. Sometimes, you know, shit happens once I found out that wasn't the case contacted a registrar to see if there was any hack going on and neither our host nor our registrar knew what the story was and when a person who works at a company like GoDaddy is telling you they've never seen anything like this and they can't even tell at their level what's going on kind of seems something bigger is afoot then I was like literally walking into a Thanksgiving family dinner. So I tried my best to put it out of my mind. I shut my phone off and, you know, went about my evening.
2: Mecca was at his sister's house in New Jersey. I was
4: just enjoying one of my rare days off. And then I decided to check my email and our NMC group thread was going off. And so I checked the sites that are mentioned and I see this giant RIAA seized
2: by the government notice on, on all these websites. And I'm not going front. That shit freaked me out. Loki was also in New Jersey at his parents' place.
12: At the fucking dinner table, sitting with my parents. We're having Thanksgiving dinner. And I get a text that says, yo, On Smash has been taken by the feds. And my stomach
2: drops. Splash, whose site to JazzOne.com was the main source for the new music cartel's exclusives, was driving to his parents' house with his kids in the back seat when he received a phone call from Loki.
16: And Loki says, Yo, what's wrong with your website? I said, What do you mean? Go look at your website. I pull over, I get off the highway early and go pull up at somebody's house and go on their website. I couldn't wait till I got to my parents' house. I went there, turned on the computer, and I went to my website, and I was quiet. I tried to refresh it a bunch of times, and the same seized banner was on there. And I was quiet.
2: Splash's site was taken too. I was scared that we were next.
12: I'm like, if they're getting them, they're coming for us too. And I couldn't finish my food. Because now we're talking Fed level. So now I'm like, I didn't think we were that big of a deal To the Feds would want to take us down or indict us or whatever the case is.
16: I got back in the car. My kids were in the car. Proceeded to my parents' house. Went on their computer in their basement and tried to go inside again to see if it was different. I didn't even eat fucking Thanksgiving dinner. I was at the table quiet and numb because I assumed I was going to jail. And I was like, I'm not going to jail again. Now, mind you, when I went to jail, I went to jail for selling crack the undercover back in the days. And i only did 10 months two weeks hard criminal time the other nine and a half months i was in juvie shit which was kind of easy but i know what that first two weeks did to me with being around hard criminals and the fights that i got into and i lost more fights than i won i was like now i'm older i'm not going to jail over the shit i don't want to so i was quiet that's all i was thinking about was jail i didn't eat thanksgiving dinner as good as it looked and nothing that shit fucked me up
2: Hoff's mind was going a million miles an hour, cycling through why this would have happened, the realities of the US government's involvement, and what would happen to his business. Effectively,
5: you can't get to your website, you can't even get to your emails that were associated with that because there's no place to log in. So it was the way they were actually able to kind of shut down all our operations from a very high level and in addition to not being able to access some of your content when they seize the url the one thing that's anyone who's ever ran a website knows your google ranking and authority and your seo is kind of the most important thing a website has. When someone searches for on Smash or Joe Button or any rapper they may be looking for, you know, that's what dictates whether you're on the first page or whether you're on page 200. And when they completely seize your domain, they're effectively wiping clean five to 10 years of Google authority that you've worked up over time. So not only are they cutting access to all your content and your website and your emails, they are also wiping the slate clean of anything you've ever done before on the internet.
12: The only time you hear about fed talk or indictments is when when you hear about Rico charge or like someone selling drugs or someone getting killed. We're playing music. We're posting music.
5: To be quite honest, I didn't know if at any moment my door was getting kicked in, was my ATM going to work, you know, was my bank accounts going to be seized, was I going to be arrested?
1: The Blog Era is executive produced for Other Tone by Pharrell Williams, Moses Shoyola, and Scott Venner. Executive produced for It's The Real by Eric Rosenthal, Jeff Rosenthal, and Steve Carlos. Produced by Greg Mayo and Ozmi Rollins. Written, researched, and hosted by Eric Rosenthal and Jeff Rosenthal. Original score by Greg Mayo. Edited by Greg Mayo. Story edited by Tim Hotep Aku. Fact-checked by Brandon Callender. This is The Blog Era.